Bob Ray, welcome to the new school. I'm so excited to be here. Bob, you're the author of a, a fascinating book called No Open Wounds, Healed Traumatic Stress Now, Complete Recovery with Thought Field Therapy. Uh, so let's start with uh, what thought field therapy is. Okay. Um, thought field therapy is uh, a way to um, heal um, the problems associated uh, with traumatic stress. And actually, thought field therapy has applications in all mental health and in all physical health. And essentially, it's um, uh, done by tapping with your fingertips on meridian treatment points in specific sequences in order to alleviate the symptoms that you're treating. So I'm looking at your book right now, and you helpfully, uh, right at the very start of your book, give the basic steps for uh, tapping with traumatic stress. So would you go through the sequence uh, that you use in tapping for traumatic stress? Sure, and, and um, I would invite anyone who listens to this to experiment for yourself with this. But one of the wonderful things about working in the realm of thought field therapy and the realm of energy psychology is, is that because we are working with energy systems, you get the results um, immediately. Now, in almost all cases, you're going to be able to sense the change that's happening, and you'll know whether it's working for you or not. And because thought field therapy does not cause any harm, um, either it works or it does nothing at all, um, I've taught this to children, I've taught this to um, uh, paraprofessionals, to peers, um, I do this over the phone, I've, I've done, been on radio programs and I've done this, and people can get immediate relief for themselves simply by following the protocol. So let's imagine that a listener wanted to know how to do it. Why don't you just walk us right through well, it? Well, I would, I would start by, I would say, um, now, one of the beauties of it is, is that you don't have to do any kind of disclosure. All I would say to you is think about an event in the past, and when you think of that event, um, you can still feel some upset in your body. Now, most of us who've had some trauma in our lives um, could just think about one of those events, and then as we, we think about it, we'll notice that we feel certain things in our, our body. We may feel numb. We may feel scared. We may feel tight. Um, so then I would ask you to um, rate that upset that you feel in your body on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being no upset at all and 10 being the worst that you can imagine. So as you think about that event in this moment, how much upset do you feel in your body right now? And you, you, get, you would get a number for that. Um, and it doesn't have to, if you're experimenting, you don't have to go for the worst trauma in your life. You can just think of something that um, provokes some emotion in you. Now, do you, do you want the, when you say think about the event, mm -hmm. do you want the person to make the event as fully present as possible or just simply think about it? Well, I would, I, in, in doing it with just the general public, I would say just we want you to have some sense of it and to be aware of it. Okay. Um, we don't need to have you at an 8 or a 9 or a 10 in order for this to work. If you can think of something and you feel a little bit of upset and you feel it at a, at a, at a 5 or 6, 
you know, you're going to feel the, the result. And the reason that I am asking you to pay attention to this is so that you can see what the change that happened. Uh, the problem with traumatic stress is, is that um, people get overwhelmed by their emotions and then can't continue to process. But we'll come back to the theory a little bit. Um, so you pick uh, an event. You uh, look at the upset. You experience the upset that you feel in this moment. And it's going to be different than when it just happened, but in this moment you rate it 1 to 10. Then what I would ask you to do is tap on the side of your hand with your fingertips. Tap the place where if you're going to throw a karate chop, uh, you'd make contact. So you tap there, and then with your fingertips, tap underneath your nose, right on your upper lip. Ten times each time, right? Uh, about Yeah, about ten times. Uh, now, the nice thing about this is that... Um, it's not a real precise kind of thing, but um, if you tap enough, you'll get the results. Um, so about 10 times in each location, and then tap at the beginning of either one of your eyebrows. So if, the, if you went to either side of the center line of your face just a bit uh, and just tap the beginning of an eyebrow, and then you would go underneath the eye, right on that bone, the orbital bone, right under the, the eyeball and tap right there. And then um, you're going to tap under your arm. And the, the place is, what we say with women is, where your bra comes across the middle of your ribs, right there. Um, for men, we would say on a line level with your nipples. And tap 10 times there. And now you're going to tap under your collarbone. And the place to find the collarbone point is, um, you just go down, go to that notch in your throat where the two collarbones come together and come down about an inch and over to either side about an inch. And you're going to be in that kind of hollow spot where the collarbone and sternum and the first rib come together. So tap there. And then uh, you're going to tap on your index finger. And the position is, the point is between the last knuckle and the bed of the nail towards the thumb. And tap 10 times there. Then go back and tap under the collarbone point again. Now go and tap on this little finger, your pinky finger. And again, between the last knuckle and the bed of the nail, slightly towards the thumb. Now, um, now once you've done that, then you're going to look at the back of your hand, either hand, and if you look at the two small knuckles, your pinky finger and your ring finger knuckles, and then slide towards your wrist about a half an inch, there, just tap that point. And we call that point the gamut spot. So you just tap there and keep tapping while you do nine things. This is called the nine gamut series. So while you're tapping, you're going to close your eyes for a moment. Go ahead. Now open your eyes. Now hold your head relatively level and just drop your eyes down and look to the left. And tap there about five times now. Uh, look over to your right and down. Now what you're going to do is this is the hardest part. You're going to keep tapping, and you're going to whirl your eyes in a circle all around in one direction. And then after you get all the way around, you're going to whirl your eyes in the, a circle in the other direction all the way around. Okay, and now while you're tapping, you'll hum a couple of bars of any tune. And it doesn't really matter what tune. Just uh, You want to be musical. And then count, one, two, three, four, five, and then hum again. 
And now we're going to repeat the tapping we did before we started the Nine Gamut series. So you tap the side of your hand. Now tap under your nose. Tap at the beginning of the eyebrow. Tap under the eye. Tap under the arm. Tap under the collarbone. Tap on your index finger. Tap under the collarbone. Then tap on your little finger. And then tap under the collarbone. Next thing we do is simply ask the person to recall the event that they started with. So if they had a picture in their mind, pull that picture up. If they had a, uh, a certain remembrance, go to that remembrance. And then, uh, as they did before, go back into your body and check what the level of upset is that you feel in your body. And then you can rate that again 1 to 10. If it drops then um, and you're st and not at a 1, then you can just repeat the pattern again. If it dropped but it didn't go all the way to a 1, repeat the pattern again. And the beauty of this is that you can't hurt yourself with it. This is uh, the most simple thing that we do with thought field therapy. Um, there's a whole lot more that can be done if that's not working. But in about 80 to 90% of the cases where we're dealing with traumatic stress, um, people will feel a reduction in that upset. And that's an extraordinary claim, isn't it, Bob? Uh, oh, yes. The, to say that... Uh, war veterans from uh, Afghanistan or Iraq or the Gulf War or Vietnam, uh, women who've been raped as children, uh, people with multiple personality disorders, um, uh, people with severe chronic pain. Um, and in fact, as you point out, this isn't only for traumatic stress. Uh, you have other sequences of tapping uh, for other conditions. Right. So could you list the other conditions where uh, well, this approach works? Just, yeah. Just a little bit, because I want to be clear with you about if somebody has a formal diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, um, it means there's a whole syndrome of symptoms that, that they're contending with. And what we've just done will eliminate the overwhelming emotional distress associated with that particular memory that particular event. But that doesn't mean that with one tapping sequence that you will be cured of PTSD. No, I understand that. Okay, I just want to be clear with no, you. No, it's very important to be clear. Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, because I've worked with people, I've worked with Vietnam vets, um, I've worked with vets from World War II, and they'll come and they may be in pretty good shape, uh, but they still have certain memories that when they start to have those memories, they get overwhelmed by them. And, you know, they may have been working on this for 30 years in a lot of different ways. But simply by using the tapping techniques, the thought field therapy, we're able to eliminate the overwhelming emotional distress. And that means that um, things that they've had to avoid in their life, they no longer have to avoid. Um, so it has lots of applications for healing across the board. Um, but uh, and I've worked with people with all sorts of anxiety disorders, uh, from, uh, you know, uh, specific phobias, social phobias, generalized anxiety, um, worked with people with depressions of different types, um, I've worked with people with uh, chronic 
um, physical pain. Um, and this is very good for eliminating pain. In many cases, it, you'll get a result that you, people haven't gotten anywhere else. And you talk about things like spiders, claustrophobia, air turbulence, and, right. and addictions. Right. And um, the, uh, the, in addictions, it's very useful. Um, in the book, I talk about my own experience with addictions and how using thought field therapy el- eliminates the urge to use. Mm-hmm. And once you eliminate the urge to use, then you can change the habit. You can break the addiction. Um, but as long as people um, feel um, that I have to have it, whether it's marijuana or heroin or chocolate or um, uh, th- that urge, that compulsion to do it, is going to make it very difficult to break the habit uh, and to end the addiction. I want to ask you a contextual question about thought field therapy. I have, along with your book, uh, in front of me a uh, book by Francine Shapiro uh, uh, called The Handbook of EMDR and Family Therapy Processes. And as you know, Francine Shapiro is the founder of EMDR, and uh, EMDR is an acronym that stands for uh, Eye Movement uh, what is it? I'm... Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Right. I was trained in um, uh, with Francine's um, uh, in the early '90s when it first uh, was coming out, and um, I learned EMDR, and I actually used it for um, several years before I learned TFT. So I want to ask you to compare and contrast EMDR and thought field therapy, because what's fascinating to me is that. Uh, the same elements of, uh, in other words, thought field therapy, its focus is the tapping, mm-hmm. but it also uses, as we can see, eye movements and tonality in the humming. Uh, and EMDR, uh, you know, focuses on the eye movement, but it also uses tapping if uh, the eye movement isn't easy for somebody. So the tapping that's done in EMDR is bilateral. It's just on the left side and the right side of the body back and right. forth. Right. It doesn't follow the it doesn't follow the Chinese meridian system they, they which don't you work care with. About that at all. Right. Because what they're doing is they're just trying to activate left and right hemispheres of the brain. And um, so the, it's EMDR is essentially a cognitive processing model. It's, uh, it's described as an information processing model, and it's cognitive uh, in its most fundamental sense. Now, what makes it different than other cognitive approaches is the addition of that physiological component of uh, bilateral stimulation. And um, that, you know, nobody's really sure how that works, um, but it does tend to help uh, clear those memory channels um, in a way that's faster than, uh, than in the past. Now, I'll tell you what I loved about EMDR was the, its strict protocol. It had a clear sense of this is how you do it, this is how you approach it, this is what you tell your clients, this is what you want your clients to do. And it's very much a cognitive technique in that sense. Um, for everything from, you know, how they describe it to, um, you know, they talk about installation of cognition as one of the, the final steps that you do with it. Now, thought field therapy is not a cognitive technique. It bypasses cognition and goes directly to what we would think of as the control mechanism for the mind and the body and the spirit. And so we really don't 
care about, um, the, see, the thing about EMDR is if you're not able to cognitively function, you can't use EMDR. You might get a little bit of relief from bilateral stimulation by itself, but generally you're not going to get very far beyond uh, just a little a bit of, of relaxation. But with EMDR, uh, I'm sorry, with thought field therapy and with other tapping, um, we do this with children. We do this with infants. Um, this can even work with animals because cognition is not uh, required other than once you're in that thought field. So if you're working with, a, with an infant, you can't say, think about this. You have to do what we call put them into a perceptual field where they're exposed to it. And then you tap with them. They're going to respond. And so the cognition is not the critical element here. It's the, um, the ability to um, institute or to uh, initiate your own body's healing processes. I understand the, the theoretical point you're making, but help me with this part of it. Okay. Um, it seems to me that in both instances, the primary intervention is a, a somatic physiological intervention, whether it's eye movement primarily or tapping primarily. And what you're saying is that the way EMDR is presented is as a cognitive model, but since both interventions are somatic, how is it possible to be sure that they tap into such different things as opposed to simply being framed well, in different concepts? One of the things that I, that I will say to you is, is that, that what you see in my book is the most simplistic um, application of thought field therapy and that... Um, uh, it would be, uh, I think, uh, a misrepresentation to say that if you understand the content of what I'm presenting there, that you understand what underlies thought field therapy. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the, the difficulties is, is uh, for example, um, you're saying that it's somatic. Some people are saying that it's energetic. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is um, people describe thought field therapy as an energetic technique. And I wouldn't say that that's, that's terribly off, but if uh, we were to talk with Dr. Callahan, the man who um, innovated this and who has been working on this for the last 35 years and developing it in, from which all tapping therapies are derived, he prefers to call it uh, an informational psychology mm -hmm. as opposed to an energetic one because we don't really care about the quality of the energy that's flowing through the meridians. What we care about is the information that's being passed on to the control mechanism in the mind and the body and the spirit. So um, it's kind of like saying, you know, if we think of a, um, uh, energe energetic uh, approaches as being concerned with the meridians, how well the energy is flowing, it would be like saying, well, um, in a uh, telephone system, we're concerned about how well the quality of the signal is being carried across the lines. Um, and that's concerned with the energy that's being dealt with. But what we're really more important is not the quality of the signal. It's the information that's being passed along that telephone line. So, and what we know is, is that um, as long the quality of that signal is not important, as long as there's at least enough uh, ability to pass along the information that's needed. 
and that's kind of how what we're doing is we're looking at by tapping on those meridian points in specific sequences is we're passing information on to the control mechanism and the mind and the body and the spirit. Now, in addition to uh, thought field therapy, you also work with something that you call now, which I understand is your own uh, framework. Is that correct? Right. And, and now is, is simply a theoretical or a, a model for approaching traumatic stress. And um, you can use other techniques within the now model. It's just a way to understand what happens in traumatic stress and the steps uh, necessary to um, come to complete healing. So what is the now model? Well, the now model uh, simply now stands for, well, it stands for a couple things, but uh, the, uh, it's most important to recognize that the problem with uh, traumatic stress is it's an inability to be present in the here and now. It's the inability to, to discern the difference at an emotional, physiological, spiritual level, the difference between the there and then, where things happened and it was unsafe and it was dangerous, and the here and now, where things are safe and where things can um, be dealt with in a way that doesn't require the body responding in these um, uh, heroic ways. And so now really does emphasize the idea that the, the idea of healing comes to being in this moment and to being able to uh, get the body to deal with that uh, problem of time, of being present. And to be able to say, that happened to me in the past, and that's a memory. And I can do with that all the things I do with every other memory. I can turn it on. I can turn it off. I can focus on it. I can learn from it. I can avoid it without having to um, do anything that's harmful or uh, difficult. And so the NOW model stands for the three phases of treatment that the, or recovery that I think you have to go through. The N stands for navigating the symptoms. And that simply means that until you get to a place where you feel safe and you're not being triggered by, you know, reminders of the event or you're not being uh, caught up in flashbacks or nightmares or daydreams that take you to that place that overwhelms the body and the mind and the spirit, you're not going to be able to do anything else. And that's mostly the symptoms that people see with traumatic stress. So the now is learning how to navigate those symptoms. So, and the thought field therapy that we use as a way to uh, eliminate the overwhelming upset is the best way I know to do that. After you get to a place where you can go through your day and not be overwhelmed by triggers, uh, reminders of events, um, then you have to be able to do the next part of uh, which is uh, the O, which is observing and understanding from a safe position what happened to you. The, the problem is, is that human beings, I don't know if it's a problem, but human beings tend to have to make sense out of their lives. They have to make sense out of the order of their lives. And in order to do that, you have to step back and say, what happened to me? How did it happen? Why did it happen? Um, and be able to make some kind of rational sense out of the events, even if the, it's just being able to understand that that's what a body does in that moment. That's the way that you respond as a group in that moment. But to make sense out of what has happened to you, and once you can observe what's happened and have some understanding to it, then uh, comes the final part, which uh, has to do with working your life and 
your life choices with integrity. So now that you understand what's happened to you and you can go through your daily life without being upset, um, you have to then come to say, well, what am, I, what am I taking away from this and what am I learning from this and what am I going to do with it? So when we talk about working life's choices with integrity, integrity means two things here. It means in a sense of completeness and wholeness that you don't have to run away, you don't have to be afraid, you don't have to be scared, you don't have to leave part of yourself behind. You're a complete person in living your life. And integrity also means in, uh, being congruent with a set of standards, a code of ethics, a way of living your life, a standard that's important to you. So thought field therapy is this uh, meridian, traditional Chinese medicine, meridian-based, either energetic or informational approach to changing the way trauma is stored in the system. And now, which also, as you point out, stands for No Open Wounds, that's the the title of your book, now is a broader framework uh, within which uh, thought field therapy is, uh, in effect, a technique. Is that a fair statement? I think that's statement? a fair statement, yeah. Right. yeah. So uh, let me go to something that uh, you talk about in the book, which is that there are different kinds of trauma, obviously. So there are the traumas uh, that uh, in the dsm four. Uh, uh, medical handbook or psychiatric handbook, uh, 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 you know, a trauma as the uh, as an isolated traumatic incident producing discrete behavioral and biological responses to discrete triggers, mm-hmm. and then there's what Bessel van der Kolk at uh, uh, Boston University, uh, head of the trauma center there, describes as developmental trauma disorder which is a whole history of not being safe as a child uh, uh, or being abused, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a chronic way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you describe both forms of trauma. So um, what is the difference between working with someone who has a discrete adult trauma mm-hmm. and working with someone who has developmental trauma disorder which, by the way, is not uh, recognized by the DSM at this point, and, and van der Kolk and others are working hard to get it recognized, uh, but somebody who has a developmental trauma disorder and a whole history of being unsafe in the world. What's the difference between working with people in those two situations? Well, it's very interesting that you, you bring this up because this is a controversy in the field, and right now, um, as they begin to look at uh, writing the next edition of the diagnostic manual, they're, uh, they're considering several things. One is, is that should trauma be a category in and of itself, um, right now it's categorized under anxiety disorders. Um, and so there's a whole question about is trauma a different order, uh, a different quality of uh, disorder than what you get with a generalized anxiety disorder. It's also interesting because some of the discussion is around that question of what is trauma. And there's some trying to get more clear about what is acceptable as that definition. And there's some discussion even of removing that criteria completely and simply saying, if you're overwhelmed by an event, it's a traumatic event. Um, I think that the difference, I'll get back to your question here, I'm sorry, um, is that um, think of it this way, that 
um, if, let's say that um, I'm in an automobile accident and I've had a, a relatively well-supported life, parents loved one another, loved their children, thought it was important to protect their children, um, and I've gone through life uh, pretty much unscathed, um, and I have an event, um, what's going to happen is, is that I'm going to be able to process that in the context of a different worldview than what would happen is if I had spent my life um, in a situation where um, there was constant um, activation of those systems necessary to keep me alive. So uh, think, uh, it's, it's kind of like if you think about it in terms of brain circuitry, what happens is in a moment of life and death, um, when we feel that um, we're horrified or we're fearful or we're hopeless, and in that moment, what happens is our body activates a whole series of systems. One of the things it does is it activates the, the um, uh, sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight, right? And so we learn then using that energy and that um, power to get ourselves into a safer place. Now, if that happens just one time, then we're able to just recover fairly normally given a little bit of time, a little bit of restoration, we're going to come back to our normal operating. The parasympathetic system is going to kick in and it's going to balance out. The problem is is that in this developmental stuff that you're talking about is, is that as a child you're constantly being activated because you're not safe and because there's numerous triggers going on around you. Either you're being assaulted yourself in some physical, sexual, emotional way or somebody you love is being assaulted that way. I mean, I was sitting and talking with a woman last night who very appears, you know, she's got a Ph.D., she's um, very successful, but when it gets right down to it, um, she watched her father beat her mother from age 6 to about age 10. And um, she just is so frightful um, because she's so easily triggered into that state of it's not safe. And in many ways, that becomes her steady state is the world's not safe and her body's always reacting as though it is. So part of the difference is, is that when you're dealing with somebody like that, you have to help them find a way to create a sense of safety in the world, both emotionally, spiritually, and physically, um, so that they're not being so easily triggered and they can relax. Um, when you're dealing with just a single incident, that's a whole lot easier because the body is, is designed to um, uh, recover from that. I mean, the, the definition of post-traumatic stress is that you have to have it for at least 30 days because most people don't. If you have a single event, um, you can expect that, yeah, you may have some images in your head that night as you go to sleep. It may be there for a couple of days. You may be on edge, but you're immediately going to start to recover, and within two or three days, you're going to be better. And that's why you can't diagnose somebody with a traumatic stress um, in the first three days. Um, if, and they can't even be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress for the first 30 days because the expectation is, is that the body does heal, the spirit does recover. And the problem becomes when it doesn't. And so by using thought field therapy and some supportive techniques, you can speed that process um, and eliminate maybe that you know few days of bad feelings. But the problem becomes if somebody has had this, um, what Vanderkalt describes as uh, 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 st 
uh, extreme stress disorder um, over a lifetime, this developmental problem, is, is that the body doesn't know how to recover. And so you have to go much further in terms of helping it create some new circuitry is the way to think about it. This, this yeah, that makes lots of sense. So uh, let's step back from uh, from this approach for a moment and EMDR, which uh, is a uh, 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 let's see a parallel approach, if if somewhat different. But consider for a moment with me all the different approaches that uh, are taken to trauma therapy. So, for example, there's drama therapy and theater therapy is a really serious approach. There are a lot of things that focus on narrative, uh, you know, transforming narrative. There are other things that focus on meditation. Mm -hmm. There are other things that focus on group process and sharing experience. Mm -hmm. Help us make sense of the whole enormous range of approaches that have uh, been taken to working with trauma and whether there are certain core themes that you see or some ways of organizing all these different approaches uh, as we seek to understand this really fundamental question, which is when life fundamentally disrupts our capacity to take things in and there are consequences that go on for years and years, how do we understand the extraordinary range of approaches, to say nothing of pharmacological approaches, that people have taken to this? Well, I, 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 you know, I would say to you that um, at, at the core, it's all basically the same thing, um, which is this ability to make sense out of your experience and to be able to gain control over the choices that you make in your life. And that whether it's, it's, it's drama, um, you know, where you can work it out by, um, you know, there's been great stuff done with uh, the lost children um, and in communities where um, they don't have therapy to help people create a way to make sense out of what happened. See, I think when you look at all of these things, they're either trying to, calm the body and the mind enough to a point where you can go on that healing process. See, the, the difficulty, of, for example, right now, the, the common evidence-based approach is thought to be something um, called uh, exposure therapy, or it could be desensitization therapy. depends on how you think about it. And you know what? That stuff works good because if you can tell your story, and you can go through the process and get comfortable with what happened and your understanding of it and your ability to express your thoughts and feelings about that, you are going to be better. But the problem with, with exposure therapies is, is that if your body is not able to tolerate that process, you're re-traumatizing yourself. So the difficulty here is finding a way to um, calm the, the mind and relax the body to a point where you're not re-traumatizing yourself. There's good research that says that if somebody has PTSD in a formal sense, in a complete sense... Post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes. Right. That when they're exposed to a trigger and their body thinks that they're there and that again, they're having a flashback, and that could be complete in terms of visualization or it could be just their body is responding as though you're back to there and then. 
The problem is, is that your body secretes the same chemicals it did there and then. You have the same physiological response. And the problem is, is that that activation of the sympathetic and that whole hormonal response is causes damage to the body, and it causes and it re and it re um, it sort of emphasizes again that you're in an unsafe place. And so the problem is, is that when the body responds that way, you're causing more damage, and then you only have a couple of choices. One choice is, is that you shut down. Another choice is you run away. Um, and so the problem with all of these other approaches, including EMDR, I, and I have a great deal of respect for it, is, is that um, you have to be very skillful because if you trigger somebody into a state where they're feeling like they're in a life-and-death kind of event and their body's responding that way and they want to get out in that same way, you have to know what you're doing with it. That's the reason that EMDR requires that you be a licensed mental health professional in order to be trained in it because you're never quite sure what you're going to trigger or where that's going to take, and you have to be able to stay with that person to bring them back to a place where their, their body balances again and their mind um, calms again. Um, and that's very helpful to understand. So what you're saying is that even while thought field therapy and EMDR use, as we've said, some of the same techniques, uh, you know, tapping, eye movement, tonality, and so forth, the difference among the differences, uh, there are many differences, but one of the key differences is that thought field therapy uh, does not require uh, sort of... Uh, uh, triggering or bringing the person close to being triggered into a recurrence of the trauma trauma experience that right. you can that you can work with uh, much lower levels of arousal right. and, and still see consequences. Right, and the thing is, is that it, you can use the thought field therapy to reduce that arousal in moments. So even if I say to, to a client, I say, think about that particular event or that situation, and they begin to feel the upset, we're going to stop it immediately with the tapping. And that's the beauty of it is, is that it doesn't um, get you into this place where you're overactive and your system is trying to recover and it takes you three days to calm down again. But you know? doesn't the EMDR also uh, start calming you almost immediately? I'm, I'm sorry, can you say that again, Mike? Yes. Doesn't the EMDR start calming you in the same way almost immediately? How is it different in that respect? Well, I, I'll be honest with you here, and, and I think to be fair to EMDR, I'm not uh, currently an expert in EMDR. Okay. I learned that many years ago, mm -hmm. and um, all I can tell you is, is that um, I don't, I, I won't say that it doesn't do that, but I'll say to you, um, I've been on site many times uh, working with people doing crisis intervention, and um, I'll just say, here, do this with me, and I'll just have them model the tapping pattern that I did for you, and they'll immediately calm down. It doesn't require any explanation. It doesn't require any kind of setup. It just tapping in the right order does that. Um, you know, and that's, that's the beauty of TFT is, is that you can do it for yourself. Um, I just last uh, last year I went to uh, Uganda with a team of people with the from the Association of Thought Field Therapy Foundation, 
and there were um, we were there, and we were co-sponsored by the uh, Catholic diocese, and we were in the western edge of Uganda. We were on the border with uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, and we worked with um, communities there, and we were able to train um, over um, 300 people uh, in how to do basic thought field therapy. Now. Um, the beauty of this is is that this is a region that has been terrorized for years. This is a, a region that has very little resources. The communities we stayed in didn't have electricity, didn't have running water, um, but they did have a good sense of community. And we came together and we trained um, 200, over 200 people at one time in one location in how to do this. It's a two-day training. And then what we did is we took um, 60 of those people, put them in teams of two, and invited through the radio and through others, the rest of the community, if you have trauma, if you have pain, if you have upset, uh, come and let your community help you. And so we had another 300 people come the next day um, or over the next couple of days, and they were able to um, treat them, to give them some relief from traumas that they'd had for, you know, 10, 15, 5 years, and suddenly that would be gone. And that the beauty of thought field therapy is, is because it doesn't cause harm. You can train anybody who wants to be a helper um, and can begin to do that. So that, that's very powerful. I mean, we probably reached uh, 700 people um, in the couple of weeks that we were there in terms of providing them with a way to deal with things that had been, you know, running their lives for years. Those fears, that avoidance, that um, sense that it's, they can't ever be safe again. In the book, you have a, a very uh, powerful story. It's an extreme story of uh, a woman with uh, multiple personality disorder and how you treated her. Mm-hmm. Could you briefly describe uh, her situation and what it was that you did? Well, the, the, this, is a, this is a woman who's been in and out of psych hospitals her whole life. She's in her 40s. And um, when she came to see me, um, she was struggling to get off medication. Uh, the problem with multiple personalities is um, you give a medication to one personality that's maybe depressed, um, and the problem is, is that another personality may be an anxious type. And the antidepressant medication doesn't help the anxious type, and if you give them an anxiety medication, it doesn't help the depressed person. So uh, medication is very difficult when working with emo- uh, with em- uh, I'm sorry with multiple personality disorder. So she was trying to get off that. So the problem is is that what do you do when you begin to get upset when you begin to feel like you can't cope? Well, part of her coping mechanism is is that she will switch from one personality to another. And the, the difficulty is that then we never be we're never able to resolve anything in terms of that way of. Uh, that personality. So what what I did was I started teaching her how to do thought field therapy. And so if someone presents, say a child presents, and she's just scared and upset and afraid of everything, we can use tapping to calm that down and let that little girl personality begin to just play. And then another personality may have uh, some, uh, have had memories of specific events and can't go to certain places and has to avoid them. We can use thought field therapy to uh, eliminate that upset, that discomfort, so then she can go to those places. 
Though, as you described it in the book, uh, you might work with one personality, the original presenting personality, teach it uh, thought field therapy, and then in another session, another personality, this time a 14-year-old, would show up who had no knowledge that the uh, first presenting personality, which was the 40-year-old woman, had learned the thought field therapy. So you had to do it with a 14-year-old. You had to do it with each one. And in terms of consequences, as you indicated, there was very significant improvement, as I understand. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, and, um, you know, I'm still working with her because we've got a lifetime of things to work on here. But um, she's not been hospitalized since she started working with me, and that's going on four years ago. She's not been on medication. Um, and these are this significantly changes the quality of her life. The fact that she doesn't have to be on medications, and also the fact that she's not in and out of hospitals, and she's been able to go uh, to school to get some uh, training programs um, because she's not so overwhelmed um, and can can function. It's it's a very it's a fascinating. Uh, case and and it's always surprising to me that I have to teach again to someone else another personality the the thought field therapy um, but that's the nature of multiple personality disorder I mean part of the definition is there are personalities that uh, are unknown um, within the system so um, you, they, they don't have awareness of one another they don't share uh, there isn't co-consciousness of this Another case study in the book was of a woman who, as a young child, was abused by a group of pedophiles and also forced to watch and participate as they abused other children. Could you describe your work with her? Well, the, the, it, the thing with her is, is that it's, it's very clear that because she was so terrified as a child, it's very difficult for her to be able to um, trust anybody. So one of the things that was significant early on in our work was is that she was telling me a story that was so horrific that I just started crying. And I, I felt myself just being overwhelmed by it. And so I stopped her, and I said, I need to take care of myself. And I did some tapping in front of her, and I was able to eliminate that upset that was going on in me. And then I could turn back to her and say, so let's continue. You tell your story because it's important that you share it and that we understand what was going on. And then I could lead her through some tapping and she could tell me of these horrific events. And the thing that, that I loved about it was is that when she came back the next week, it really changed the quality of our relationship because she said that it was the first time in her entire life that anyone had ever cried for her as, in regards to what happened to her as a child. Now, you're based in San Diego. San Diego's a military town, and you've mentioned uh, working with soldiers. I I wonder if you could uh, describe uh, a soldier who comes to mind who you've worked with, with uh, thought field therapy. Well, um, one was a... um, I was doing a a presentation at the Naval Hospital, and I asked for a volunteer, and this man came forward, and he was an officer, but he had been an enlisted Marine, and uh, we had been talking about, um, you know, just the horrors of war, and I asked him to think of an event, and the event that he thought of is when he was engaged as a, uh, in combat and um, uh, with the killing of civilians, um, because that happens in war. Um, children get killed, 
um, innocent women get killed. And he, you could just see him as he went to that place. He, as soon as he started to remember it, he became this very different appearing sort of guy. He had suddenly that thousand yard stare was there. And rather than try to talk to him about any of this, simply said, tap. And we did the tapping, and then you could see him coming back. He could be aware that this was a memory of something that happened in the past. And once it becomes a memory, then you can begin to talk about how do I integrate this into my life? How do I give meaning to, to this event in my life? But until you can separate yourself and become uh, from the event itself, make it a memory and become present, you're not going to be able to really uh, work through, you know, what kind, what was it like for me to know that I've killed innocents? Um, and how do I cope with that in my life? Now that, there's no tapping for that. There's there's understanding and there's lots of men who've been through this and there's lots of, of good discussion and um, guidance on how do you come to, to grips with those things. I'd like to ask you a question about uh, the process by which some of these uh, innovative approaches to trauma become recognized and accepted. Um, I know from having talked uh, with David Servon Shriver and others who work with EMDR mm -hmm. that there's been, you know, a real struggle over time to bring that uh, to credibility. Uh, even though uh, there are many academics that vouch for it and, and large numbers of people across the country and around the world that use it. Uh, but my understanding, the last time I uh, talked with uh, another colleague in that field, was that the military didn't accept it at that point uh, right. for work with soldiers. Right. Uh, so evidence-based approach. It's not considered evidence-based. So has thought field therapy had an easier or harder trajectory? Oh, much harder, much harder. See, the thing is, is that at least with EMDR, um, you have a theoretical base that people can relate to. You can say it's, it's an information processing model, it's a cognitive model, and people understand immediately what you're talking about. And you have a basis for discussion and people can begin to understand it. So even though there's resistance to uh, techniques that are that effective and that fast, um, there, has, there have been making headway. The, what they do is they keep changing the rules on you. Um, you know, I, I was at a, a conference for the International Society uh, for the Studies uh, Traumatic Stress. I'm sorry, the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies, a few years back, and I was talking to some presidents, past presidents of the organization. I was talking about TFT, and one of them was kind enough to say to me that, "Look, Bob, you're you're really got a long ways to go here because when you talk to them about your results." Um, they're going to, and try to get it published, they're going to say two things. They're, gonna either, they're either going to say to you, oh, interesting theory, but no empirical basis, or they're going to say, well, interesting um, inf information, interesting facts or study, but no theoretical basis. And the, because they don't have a way to deal with that, they don't make sense out of it. We, uh, if you ask someone to peer review one of our studies, um, if they don't know something about informational psychology or energy psychology, you'll get them saying things like, well, you want us to believe that this is based on meridian treatment points. Well, nobody's proved there's meridian treatment points. I mean, that's, 
that's the kind of thinking that goes on in uh, mainstream academia around trauma. And so that's the difficulty we have is we don't really have a basis to start with. Now, we have some good studies out there, and hopefully uh, this year we'll be, they'll be coming out three um, random uh, trial uh, <coughs> studies that were done. Um, and once that happens, I think we'll get a better response. But they'll do the same thing to us they did to EMDR. You know, they changed the standards. Instead of saying four random trials, you have to have eight. And when you got eight, they're going to say, well, you know, it's not good enough. You're going to have to have more because it doesn't fit their models and their conceptual understanding of what works. Bob, we have just a few minutes left, but I want to ask you, uh, in the book and as we've talked together, uh, you talk about the spiritual dimensions of this work, and um, you talk about God in the book in a very sort of unselfconscious way. Um, does thought field therapy itself uh, uh, include uh, a orientation toward the spiritual dimensions of healing, or is that something that you bring to thought field therapy and your work? Well, I, I think that thought field therapy itself does not require a belief in God. It doesn't require a belief in anything. It just requires you to do the tapping in the right order. Um, I think that there's no need to um, have God as an explanation for how it works or why it works. Um, I think for some people that's helpful for them to have a sense of, of a bigger picture. I guess for me the spiritual piece of this is a recognition that there is some order um, to the universe. If there wasn't some order, then TFT wouldn't work. What is your own belief? What is my own belief? Mm -hmm. I believe that there's an order to the universe, um, and I believe that I have limited access to understanding and knowing that on this point. Um, and uh, I'm, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I've, I had an interesting discussion with my mother the other day about is there an afterlife. I don't, I don't believe in an afterlife. Do I believe in one individual God? I don't think so. Do I believe there's order? Do I believe that there's a way for us to access that order and to share in the joy and the beauty of life? Yeah. Bob, in the book, you talk about causal diagnosis, and you also talk about uh, kinesiology as well as uh, meridian therapies as uh, core points. What is causal diagnosis, and what does it have to do with kinesiology? Well, causal diagnosis is the approach to um, thought field therapy that Dr. Callahan originated. And the tapping patterns that you find in the book are just generalizations of the more specific process of causal diagnosis. And uh, the way that uh, Dr. Callahan developed this over time was he found that by using... Um, kinesiology muscle testing, the body would provide us with the information we need about what order to tap in. So we better take a moment to understand what kinesiology muscle testing is. Kinesiology muscle testing is actually uh, developed originally out of uh, chiropractic medicine, and it was used for what was called localization. Um, so that was a way to test what muscle strength, uh, uh, what through muscle strength, what were the adjustments that needed to be made. And so it, uh, and still in, in chiropractic today, many times um, your chiropractor will use muscle testing of one form or another to determine um, the best sequence of treatments or um, 
precisely which ones to do. Now, people use kinesiology also to test for food sensitivities, for example. Right, and we have an application for that in thought field therapy, too. But the, the difference between what we do in chiropractic medicine, Dr. Callahan was one of the few non-chiropractors to ever take the 100-hour training that was offered in, like, 1980 um, in uh, kinesiology. And what he recognized almost immediately is that the, there is a condition under which you're going to get false positive or false negative tests. And that was the, um, and that uh, was, he actually wrote an article for their archives uh, detailing that. Um, uh, and that part of the problem is that when you're in a state of psychological reversal, which is what he calls that condition, um, your testing is not going to be good. And the problem with most people who are doing testing for uh, sensitivities um, or even in chiropractic is they don't consider the fact that about 20 to 30% of the time you're in the state of the re reversal and you're going to get a false test. So a lot of times when people say, well, you know, it tested okay for me, but when I ate it, it was bad, um, that's because they were in a state of reversal when they tested. Now, again, this... What, what is a state of reversal? What does that mean? Uh, just think of it in terms of um, one of the ways that we demonstrate it is um, if you have a voltmeter and you can measure the current flowing through the body, um, which is pretty straightforward. People have been doing this forever. Uh, if you're in a state of reversal, it's going to flow the wrong way. Instead of flowing... Um, you know, positive to negative uh, or negative to positive, it's going to flow the wrong direction. And when that happens, it causes not only just electromagnetic changes in your body, but it causes changes in the chi, it causes changes in the way that the entire system operates. And so one of the, the most brilliant things that Dr. Callahan did was he recognized this early on and was able to find ways to correct for that condition. And there's three main ways you, connect, you correct for the condition. Once you've identified it, you can use um, uh, rescue remedy, which works well homeopathically. You can use um, affirmations, um, and you can also use tapping. And in TFT, we just use tapping because it's the simplest way to do it. So when you, this is complicated, so I'm helping our listeners right. walk through it. Right. So uh, let's just go back. Causal diagnostics does what? Causal diagnostics is a way of using muscle testing to determine, um, one, if you're in a state of reversal or not, and two, if you uh, have what's called perturbations present, which means simply that um, there's a disturbance in the thought field that causes the emotional disruption. And if there are perturbations present, then using causal diagnosis, you can determine the tapping pattern, which meridians and in what order to tap in order to eliminate those perturbations and to eliminate the disturbance. And it also has applications not only in emotional healing, but in physical healing. I get it. So the role of causal diagnosis in thought field therapy is to help you determine uh, whether there is whether you're in the state of reversal, and if you are in the state of reversal, then you can use a homeopathic rescue remedy, or you can use affirmations, or you can use tapping. Right. 
and in thought field therapy you usually use tapping. Uh, and it also, in addition to helping you decide whether you're in uh, this situation or not, right. it also helps you determine which patterns of tapping will be specifically useful to you. To eliminate the cause of the, the upset. To eliminate the cause of the upset, which is called perturbations present. Right. In the thought field. Right. Um, and uh, the thing is, is that you want to eliminate the reversals so that you can trust your testing, so you get accurate responses from the testing. So what appears from all of this, Bob, is that thought field therapy is a, in depth, it's a very deep, complex uh, therapeutic framework. It's, uh, in other words, while the uh, initial capacity to provide uh, uh, sort of psychological rescue to people in traumatic stress and with other conditions is is wonderfully simple. Right. Lying behind that simplicity is a theoretical depth and a set of clinical interventions and diagnostic uh, uh, ideas that are deeply complex and must require a lot of training to well, understand and implement. Yeah, and, and um, but it's, it's accessible to most people who are willing to spend some time doing that. You don't need to have a, a degree in chemistry or math, mathematics to do that. Uh, you know, the, the thing here is, is that I wrote the book, and I guess it's probably good that you see it as this very simplistic thing because I wanted to give the book to the public to say, here, this is an easy, simple thing you can do. But underneath that, there's a whole lot more. It's, it's like saying to somebody, well, you know, if you've got, uh, if you got a, a congestion, here, take this decongestion pill. Simple, right? Just when you have that feeling, take this pill and you'll be better. Well, to really understand what goes on when you take the pill, you need a degree in... in uh, Pharmacology, <laughs> right. Right. Um, and to really understand what goes on with thought field therapy, you need to look at some much deeper things. I mean, the work of Rupert Sheldrick, uh, Morphogenic Fields, uh, is very, very important in our uh, theoretical approach. Um, you know, uh, well, let's spend a little time on that. Uh, Rupert Sheldrake is a friend and colleague, and I, I'm fascinated by his work. So uh, Rupert Sheldrake, as you know, has developed a extraordinary theory of uh, morphogenic uh, fields, mm -hmm. which essentially, let's see, how can we describe it briefly? It says that uh, every cat participates in an almost platonic uh, essence of catness that um, uh, helps shape the way the cat actually functions in the world. That's a, <laughs> a very simple view. Well, it, the, the way I, I describe it is if you think, if you ask the question, why is it that a stem cell becomes a fingernail versus uh, uh, a thigh muscle, the, the question you have to ask is, well, why does, why does it do that? And the, there must be, uh, you, you know, in generally speaking, we'd say, well, it's in the, the DNA informs the cell as to what it's going to be. But that argument falls apart as soon as you say, you know, all stem cells have exactly the same DNA in them. And that, so Rupert Sheldrick would say, there must be something else that informs that cell as to what it should be in terms of the body tissue, in terms of the organ, in terms of the, the species. 
and he would say that information is something called a morphogenic field. Right, and exactly. You can have morphogenic fields for um, cells. You can have morphogenic fields for organs, for species. It's like we as humans all share some morphogenic field. So how does that relate to thought field therapy? Well, it's, it, you have to begin to understand that if there's information, see, uh, a morphogenic field is really an information source that we tap into. And that if there's a, a discrepancy in that information we're tapping into, you're going to get a problem in the result. So the way I describe it is I say, think about um, this way, that um, uh, a thought field is like, uh, uh, think of it as a, a blueprint. So a thought field is a piece of paper, and on that paper you put some information. You put lines and numbers that describe uh, a vision, a thought, uh, information, right? And if that information is accurate, when you take that blueprint and you build the building, it's fine. But assume that, that, um, that the threes and eights get transposed um, in the blueprint, well, then we would say that there's disturbance in that thought field. There's a perturbation in the information. And if you try to build that building, you're going to have a mess. But if you go back with an eraser and, or run the program again and you correct that perturbation and you get threes and eights right, then when it manifests, when it builds, you're going to have this wonderful structure. Now, if you begin to understand that that's what we're doing in thought field therapy is we're removing those discrepancies, then the question becomes, well, where does this all exist? Well, Roger Callahan would say that uh, it exists uh, through morphogenic fields. And so he, he, did he run into Sheldrake's work early in his work, or did it become something that was added on later on? He's known about uh, Sheldrick for, you know, 20, 25 years. And he actually, um, he tells a story about he did a treatment for one of Sheldrick's um, nannies uh, one time uh, who had a terrible phobia and was able to eliminate the phobia in just moments. And then uh, later when he said to Sheldrick, would you think about that? Um, his response was, well, interesting placebo response. And, you know... <laughs> So this man who's so brilliant and so forward-thinking just can't accept that maybe something happened there that was more than just placebo or a placebo that you can create anytime you want. So the, the morphogenic field is a way for us to begin to talk about information transfer and existence of information. I like the, the work of... Um, of James Oshman also. I don't know if you're familiar. Who's James Oshman? James Oshman wrote the, the, the book uh, Energy Medicine. It came out before Donna Eden's book, and he's written um, several books. He's a brilliant man. He was a biologist for years at Woods Hole um, and then retired, went to the library for 10 years, came out and started saying, let's put this all together. So his last book is Energy Medicine in Therapeutic and Human Performance. And he makes a just brilliant cases for how it is that um, um, energy is all around us, and energy has been an, an essential part of medicine for years, but we're just now beginning to acknowledge it and to work with it. Um, anyway, he, uh, he talks about um, energy uh, and information uh, in a very comprehensive way, a brilliant man, um, and very well-grounded in the sciences and um, says, so how do you make sense out of the fact that you blink your eye, you close your eyes, 
uh, faster. Uh, he talked about uh, his one of his mentors um, was a Nobel Prize laureate um, who worked with muscles and, and neurology, and he he always dealt with this problem of. So if you're on your, your, your moped and a fly comes and touches your eyelid or touches your eyelash, how is it you manage to close your eye faster than that, that fly hits your eye? And he says because when you do the math, what you find is, is that if you look at the speed that neurons move and that muscles move and all of that, it doesn't work. There must be another information source that's guiding the body's response. And he has lots of examples like this. But what he talks about is the fact that um, we are energetic beings and that understanding that allows us to look at healing in a very uh, completely different way. Roger Callahan's wife, um, Joanne, uh, had stage 4 non-Hopkins lymphoma um, and she was diagnosed pretty late on. and she's still alive today. Um, yes, um, and she will tell you that um, it's their belief that it's the thought field therapy that has kept her alive. And she's, she's completely recovered. She's healed at this point. Um, and we've worked with a number of people with um, cancer, um, with chronic diseases, and have been able to help them. Now, you know, Roger's working on writing up some of this stuff about cancer, but you know, our basic approach is we don't talk to people about the fact that we have a way to help heal cancer because as soon as you say that, they're going to crucify you um, because, um, you know, traditional medicine is not going to want to hear any of that. Mm-hmm. But even simple things like we have ways to treat the side effects of chemotherapy so that um, well, that was one of the things that came out of Joanne's experiences is that she was taking interferon and having no symptoms at all. Um, and I've, I've done that with people who are taking chemotherapy um, found, and having ways for them to be able to take the drugs without the, the negative symptoms, and they seem to work better. Robert Bray, thank you for being with us at the New School. Well, it's been a joy. Thank you.